Hi, everyone. It's great to have you all on site, and we welcome those of you who are joining us online. We are in our Advent series, Behold My Servants, on the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Last Sunday, we looked at our first song, where God introduced to us the servant, and he called us to behold him, to fix our eyes on him, because what we behold is what we become. And today, we're looking at the second song, and it's actually not God who speaks. It's the servant himself. Because you see, in the first and the fourth song in the servant songs, it's God the Father, it's Yahweh who speaks about the servant. But in the second and the third song, it's the servant who speaks about himself. And so when we read the first verse, listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. It's Jesus himself, the servant of God, who speaks with absolute authority, commanding the whole world to listen and to behold him. Everyone, including those in remote areas of our world, are called to listen, to pay attention to Jesus. And like I said last Sunday, when Jesus calls and summons you to pay attention to him, it's not like a social media post where you can swipe it away or press not interested. When Jesus calls us to listen, we will irresistibly be drawn in and be captivated by Jesus because our spiritual well-being depends on it because we behold what we behold is what we become. And so what is remarkable here in Isaiah 49 with Jesus as the speaker, well, it's Jesus who's foretelling his calling and mission thousand years before he was even born on earth. That is remarkable about Isaiah 49. And so what is it that Jesus says about his own calling, his own mission here in this passage? Well, Jesus first thing that he tells us, that he has been predestined for his mission. He's been predestined for his mission. We read on for the rest of verse 1. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. The servant announces to the world that he will enter the world by a normal birth. But God's choosing of him to bring God's plan of salvation didn't happen at his birth. God had already chose him before he was conceived. God's sovereignty over the servant is emphasized with the fact that God had already chosen and spoken his name when he was in the mother's womb. It was God who named Jesus, not Mary. And having the right to name the child was very significant in ancient times because a name defined a person's identity. And so Jesus' name means to save. And that means it was God who gave Jesus his identity, the purpose to save, not Mary. Do you see, Jesus wasn't born to live up to his parents' expectations. Jesus was born to do the will of God. And nothing was going to stop Jesus from carrying out the will of God because God's electing and sovereign grace was upon his life. 
And in the Gospels, we read the encouraging accounts of how Mary and Joseph trusted in surrendering, surrendering and accepting God's will for Jesus. And we read about, particularly in the Gospel of Luke, how Mary cherished it in his heart. And she ended up praising to God for choosing his son to be the saviour of the world. And so for parents with us today, you and I, we can learn from Mary and Joseph to also surrender and accept God's will for your children. Because of God's electing and sovereign grace, nothing is going to stop your children from carrying out the will of God. And so don't resist, but embrace. Praise and cherish like Mary. Cherish it in your heart that God who will save your child for God's mission. For some of you, even as adults now, perhaps your whole life is all about living up to your parents' expectations. And because of that, you might have been experiencing in your own spiritual walk times that have been rocky or even perhaps turbulent. And that's because your spiritual problem is that you're trying to please everyone. People-pleasing is a spiritual problem, and you're exhausted, and you're tired, and you're conflicted all the time. Friends, first of all, you do need to accept the fact that you can't please everyone. Sometimes you're going to have to rock the boat, otherwise you might find yourself in your Christian life on rocky ground. Because Jesus says himself, you can't serve two masters. But secondly, look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him and you will see in him that you've been born again to be a child of God like Jesus, to live a new life, not to live up to your parents' expectations, but to now freely do the will of God. And you will be like Jesus as he honoured his earthly mother and father, but obeyed his heavenly father fully and wholeheartedly. Because like Jesus, nothing is going to stop God's will on your life because of his electing and sovereign grace upon your life. So don't resist, but embrace and praise God. Cherish it in your own heart over your own life that God in his grace has saved you for his mission. And so God predestined his servant for his divine mission. So what is the servant's mission? Well, secondly, we see that the servant's mission was prophetic. The servant's mission was prophetic. We read that in verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. The servant's mission will focus on his mouth. The word of God is commonly described as a sharp sword. The book of Hebrews says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. A sword's effectiveness is measured by its sharpness. And a polished arrow that's rub-free from roughness and unevenness, when that happens, well, it doesn't deflect when the arrow is in flight. And so a polished arrow is accurate. 
And so a sharp sword wins victory close at hand, and a polished arrow hits distant targets. And so the servant is to be God's mouthpiece, who will be equipped with weapons, not for military warfare, but he will be equipped with highly effective weapons for spiritual warfare. The servant speaking the word of God will conquer up close and far away, neighboring nations and distant nations. He will conquer by the truth of his words. He will be mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing with his words every thought captive into obedience of Christ, says the New Testament. But the strange thing, if you've picked it up, however, is that the sword and the arrow, well, they're hidden in sight. God, in his wisdom and timing, hid the identity and the mission of the servant until just the right time. And this is probably referring to Jesus' first 30 years of his life. Jesus grew up in a peasant home in Nazareth, a city that was considered small, obscure, and of no importance. And so Jesus was hidden and unknown for the first 30 years of his life, partly for the protection from authorities who were seeking to harm him as people came to him, acknowledging him as the king of the Jews. The authorities and the leaders found that to be a threat. And so possibly he was hidden in the first 30 years of his life as he was vulnerable, protecting from harm. But also, secondly, it allowed him to fully prepare physically intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. It was only until at the age of 30, Jesus' public preaching ministry began. Now, you're going to have to just pause and wait for a second and just consider just how marvelous that is. Because in our world, who is very, that is very showy, that is very instant, to proclaim authority, fame, in our insta-famous culture, Jesus didn't chase the limelight. You can imagine Jesus as the Son of God who was eternally with God, who could have just showed up on earth and go, hey, I'm here, listen to me. But he humbled himself in order to be fully human, to go through being a vulnerable baby, a vulnerable infant, a school child that had to go through all the school children dramas, grow up to be a teenager, and wait until it was God's perfect time for him to come out and be the servant who would prophesy God's word. I think that's something that we can marvel at this Advent. Because as soon as it was the right time, as soon as the sword was sharpened, as soon as the arrow was polished to God's satisfaction, it was time for the servant to go public and fulfill his prophetic calling, which is, as God says in verse 6, 
It is too small a thing for to, to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation might reach the ends of the earth. The servant through his prophetic preaching ministry will bring Israel back to God, not bring Israel back from exile in Babylon. That was the immediate situation for the Israelites. They were hoping for deliverance out of exile in Babylon. But the servant will bring spiritual deliverance to restore people back to God. And this spiritual salvation is not just for the Jews. The servant has a greater task that awaits him to be the light to the Gentiles, to bring salvation to all peoples. The servant, and he alone, is to be the saviour of the world. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. But not all will receive the servant, which is the last thing that God tells us in Isaiah 49. Verse 7, this is the what the Lord says, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. The servant will be deeply despised in general, by many people, and particularly abhorred specifically by the nation of Israel. Israel will collectively turn away from the servant in disgust. The New Testament's account of the fulfillment of this prophecy in the life of Jesus makes for sad reading. For example, in John 1, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. This was the danger that the servant was going to expose himself into as he accepted this mission from God. The Roman leaders, the Jewish authorities despised and abhorred Jesus to the point of crucifying him to the cross. And that choice of the cross was deliberate. It's the most humiliating, disgusting of deaths. But in God's electing and sovereign grace, the humiliation of the servant would ultimately result in his supreme exaltation. After Jesus' humiliating and disgusting death on the cross, God raised him to life, and there will come a day that Jesus will be recognized and worshipped worldwide. As Isaiah says, even the kings and princes will stand up in honoring Jesus. Worldwide glory will be given to Jesus. And so in Paul's very well-known words in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we see Jesus clearly now in this passage, when we behold his prophetic authority, we're summoned to bow down and worship him as our Lord and Saviour. 
When we are summoned, it's not like we have a choice because it says every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord now or later. When we are summoned by Jesus, it's not like we have a choice. We can either bow to worship Jesus and honor him now in the victory over his death, or we will worship and honor Jesus in defeat of our defiance of him. You can either rejoice or ridicule him now. You can either love or laugh at him now. You can either delight or deny him now. But as you can see him more clearly, how can we not be compelled to voluntarily bow down and worship Jesus as our Lord and Savior? What good news is it that we can accept Jesus as our Lord who took our humiliation and our shame to save us from humiliation and shame of reluctantly conceding that Jesus is Lord on the day of judgment. This has been made possible because Jesus' death on the cross, at which people laughed at, at which people regarded as a sign of weakness, but that was the work of the Savior to remove our guilt and our shame of sin for those who believe, for those who bow down before him. Will you not behold Jesus now? How could you not behold Jesus now? The Redeemer, the Holy One, who was despised and disgusted by the nations. But kings will see him and they will stand up. Princes will see him and they will bow down. And they will behold that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's behold him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, there is no other name in heaven can be found through whom we are redeemed, through whom your grace abounds. No other name can save but Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.